You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 80, The Crown of Charlemagne. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time at the beginning of 1804, with the defeat of the French expedition to Haiti, and the declaration of an independent Haitian Republic. Early 1804 is also roughly where we last left the narrative in Europe. By this point, Napoleon had been in power for four years, roughly the length of an American presidential term. Haiti had been a massive failure, but this was a rare exception. Generally speaking, Bonaparte had been very successful. The administration had been reformed, and a new constitution put into place. For the first time since the revolution, the government was stable and had a significant base of popular support. And, for the first time since the revolution, that support didn't just come from the left. Bonaparte had moved to the center and worked to reconcile conservative royalists with the new regime. Many still had doubts about Bonaparte. Those doubts would grow stronger after the murder of the Duke of Enghien in March of 1804. But, many others had rallied behind the new government. The violent civil conflict between right and left, which had defined France in the 1790s, was becoming a thing of the past. A big part of this outreach to the right was the Concordat, the new agreement between Napoleon's government and the Vatican. Amazingly, Bonaparte had succeeded in mending the rift and bringing the Catholic Church back to France, more or less on his own terms. As we'll see in the future, there were still a lot of disagreements between the regime and the church, and some sore feelings about the way Bonaparte had strong-armed the Holy Father. But the Concordat was still a remarkable achievement, and very popular. By now, the new civil code was completed. It would go into effect in the early months of 1804, after a slight hiccup passing through the legislature. And the civil code was only the biggest and most ambitious of a whole series of domestic reforms. There was a whole new public education system, major overhauls to law enforcement and justice, and changes to government ministries. There were also new economic policies, 
Most notably, France got a truly modern central bank for the first time in its history. And the economy and financial system did improve, although I think this was probably less due to the specific policies of the government and more because stability and some basic feeling of normality are good for business. Napoleon's biggest promise to the people of France had been peace, and he kept that one too. The Austrian Habsburgs had been soundly defeated on the battlefield, including a major victory by Napoleon himself at Marengo. The Austrians had been forced to accept a peace treaty that was very favorable to France. The United Kingdom remained unconquered, but Bonaparte still had managed to entice the British into peace talks, which ultimately produced the Treaty of Amiens ending a war which had lasted nearly a decade. The peace had only lasted about a year, in no small part due to Bonaparte's own actions. But still, the treaty had been a significant diplomatic and political victory. And, in 1804, the renewed war between Britain and France still felt distant to most average people, more of a technicality than an existential threat. And of course, Napoleon being Napoleon, the army had been strengthened. Even during the short period of peace with Britain, there had been no drawdown of France's massive military. In fact, new regiments were still being inducted into the army, and society was becoming increasingly militarized. So, in short, Napoleon had been very busy during his first four years in office. He had come to power in a coup d'etat, essentially starting from scratch with no legitimacy and few supporters within the power structure. From that difficult start, Bonaparte had managed not only to cement his new regime, but really put his mark on the country. France was transformed. With every political and foreign policy success, Napoleon himself seemed to grow in stature. He abandoned his comparatively austere general's uniform for an official first consul's outfit designed by his personal tailors, bright red with extravagant gold trim. He also wore elements of the old royal crown jewels on his person. His face appeared on France's currency, just like a monarch. The Bonaparte family's primary residence was now the Tuileries, a former royal palace. Old-fashioned court life had made a comeback. Napoleon had actually consulted with former courtiers of King Louis XVI to make sure he got all the etiquette right. In 1802, Bonaparte was made first consul for life, and publicly declared that he was now on equal footing with the old regime monarchs of Europe. The same momentum which carried the regime from success to success seemed to be carrying Napoleon to ever greater heights of eminence and splendor. Almost from the moment he took power, there were whispers that Napoleon might one day take a monarch's crown. It was a consistent topic of discussion among the public, and the idea was even floated by some close to Napoleon but the first consul had always poured cold water on this speculation. When his younger brother Lucien brought it up shortly after the Brumaire coup, Napoleon was actually pretty harsh in shooting him down. 
The message was clear. This topic was officially off-limits, even to Bonaparte's closest confidants. Napoleon was happy to let the press and the public chatter about the idea of a coronation, but he didn't want anyone to get the impression that the idea was getting serious consideration from his government. However, just because Napoleon didn't want the idea discussed in his presence doesn't mean he wasn't thinking about it in private. Scholars debate when exactly Bonaparte first began seriously considering the idea of a coronation. Some argue this was his intention even before the Brumaire coup, that the entire period of the consulate was nothing but a prelude to the empire, that it had simply taken four years for him to lay the proper groundwork for a new monarchy. Others claim Napoleon had originally been content to remain first consul, but his mind was changed by the repeated assassination attempts, which we've discussed in previous episodes, which made him worry that the system he had created would not survive his death without some kind of formal hereditary structure to provide continuity. It's an interesting discussion, but I think it's a bit beside the point. Napoleon had been fascinated with power all his life. Since childhood, he had dreamed of following in the footsteps of the heroes he read about in history books, and becoming a great historical figure in his own right. I think the idea of becoming a monarch had probably crossed his mind many times, probably first as fantasy, then increasingly as a real possibility as his star rose. Still, Napoleon approached this issue with extreme caution, without any of his usual boldness and aggressiveness. At every step, he was careful to let others lead the way. He wanted to create the impression that the crown would be a gift from a grateful nation, not the will of an ambitious dictator. On April 13th, 1804, for the first time, the issue of creating an empire was allowed to be raised within the Council of State, roughly equivalent to Bonaparte's cabinet. In the past, the First Consul had immediately shut down this kind of talk, but this time, the discussion was allowed to go ahead, although Napoleon left the room and recused himself. From the very beginning of these debates, the idea was always to create an empire, not a kingdom. After all the failures and abuses of the old regime, and the bitter struggle against counter-revolutionary royalist forces in the 1790s, the very title of king was poisoned in the minds of millions of French men and women, especially veterans of the revolution, like many of the men who made up the core of Napoleon's government. By contrast, empire had some positive connotations. It brought to mind the Romans and the Carolingian Empire, founded by Charlemagne. Napoleon looked to both as models, and his propaganda often made these comparisons. And, of course, the title of emperor would put Napoleon on par with some of his greatest rivals, the Russian emperor and the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor. As the Council of State debated the idea of crowning Napoleon, they must have been struck by how little this discussion actually mattered. Bonaparte was already a dictator. 
all the powers of the state were already concentrated around his person. He already enjoyed the right to rule for the rest of his life, and to name his own successor. He was already living in a palace, surrounded by all the splendor and gravitas due to a monarch. In fact, there was no talk of any significant changes to the French political structure. There was no discussion of throwing out the consulate constitution, or even of adding any new amendments. In constitutional terms, this was a very narrow debate over whether the term first consul should be stricken from the constitution and replaced with the term emperor. Quite literally, France was already an empire in all but name. The only question was whether or not that reality would be officially acknowledged, or if they would continue with the increasingly empty charade of republican government. The Council of State was divided. In many ways, this was a foregone conclusion. Despite Bonaparte's big show of recusing himself, his wishes were clear, and his opinion was the only one that really mattered. Still, there was a significant faction within the council that was hostile to the idea of an empire. Old revolutionaries, who may have been willing to give Napoleon all the powers of a monarch, but stubbornly refused to formally abandon republicanism. They had already allowed Napoleon to take them down the road towards monarchism, but this is where they drew the line. They would not take the final step down that path. Others may have had misgivings, but saw no point in opposing Bonaparte. Police Minister Joseph Fouché put it this way, quote, Was it not absurd for the men of the revolution to compromise everything to defend principles, when really we had nothing left for us but to protect the status quo? Bonaparte was, by then, the only man in a position to preserve us in our property, our influence, and our jobs. He profited from all these advantages. End quote. As always, you can rely on Fouché to give the most cynical possible reading of events. But he did have a point. The revolution was a spent force. The only viable way for men like Fouché to preserve the gains of the revolution, maintain their own power, and protect themselves from the vengeance of the royalists was to throw their weight behind Bonaparte. If the only choice was between Napoleon and the return of the Bourbons, the choice for Fouché and his fellow ex-revolutionaries was clear. The final vote in the Council of State was 20 for the Empire, 7 for the Republic. A convincing victory for Napoleon, but far from unanimous. Next, the proposal moved on to the legislature. Bonaparte expected the Council of State to speak their minds, and generally encouraged open discussion. The legislature was a different story. He expected the Senate and the Tribunate to obey him, and he used a carrot-and-stick approach to keep them in line. Loyal legislators were showered with money, land, and titles. When lawmakers cost him trouble, he had them expelled. You might remember that the legislature had initially rejected the civil code, and this had resulted in a minor purge of some of its most outspoken liberal members. Well, this had just happened when the proposal for an empire was introduced, so the example was fresh in everyone's mind. 
So the Senate and the Tribunate were far more cowed and compliant than the Council of State. On April 30th, 1804, Tribune Jean-François Curé introduced a bill to the legislature, the motion to institute a hereditary government. Curé was a relatively obscure figure, and ironically a former Jacobin who had voted for the establishment of the Republic twelve years earlier. He made a simple case. The revolutionaries had achieved their goals. All that was left now was to ensure the stability of the new government, and to prevent the old regime from returning. These, he claimed, could only be achieved by establishing a new, revolutionary monarchy. Only one of the tribunes dared speak against the motion, our old friend Lazar Carnot, the so-called organizer of victory who had done so much to reform the French army and had served under every revolutionary government. Carnot was one of those rare people who managed to be both a survivor and a man of principle. He stayed out of debates that didn't concern him, but held firm on the issues he cared about. During the height of the revolution, this had placed him on the left. During the Directory, he was widely perceived as an ally of the right. Now, he was carrying the liberal torch against Bonaparte. Carnot was careful to praise Napoleon and his government, but made a passionate case that democracy had only failed in the past because it was born during a time of anarchy. Now that stability had returned, Carnot believed the time was right to try again. From his speech, quote, It is quite true that before 18 Brumaire, the state was falling apart, and that absolute power pulled it back from the edge of the abyss. But what should we conclude from this? What everyone knows, that political bodies are subject to illnesses that can only be cured by violent means. That temporary dictatorship is sometimes necessary to save liberty. But, in the absence of factions, in calm times, it is easier to form a republic without anarchy than a monarchy without despotism. In a government whose head holds all executive force in his hands, all limitations would be illusory. My heart tells me that liberty is possible that its regime is easy and more stable than any arbitrary government, than any oligarchy. End quote. It was a passionate plea to the Republican values that had once animated the men of the Tribunate. But no one was listening. This was a question of power, not of ideas or rhetoric. The motion passed the Tribunate easily, although, strangely, sources differ on the exact margin of victory. Next, the motion moved to the Senate, which, generally speaking, was even more co-opted and compliant than the Tribunate. There was no serious opposition. Only three senators voted no, including Emmanuel Sies, the politician and political thinker who had been the leader of the Brumaire coup until it was hijacked by Napoleon. It must have been an occasion for some sad reflection on his role in Bonaparte's rise to power. One senator would later explain, quote, The Senate did nothing more than sanction measures which it had no means of opposing, even with the appearance of resistance. End quote. And I think that hits the nail on the head. 
By now, it was well established that the Senate and the Tribunate were almost totally irrelevant to the true workings of the French government. If Napoleon wanted a crown, he would have it. So the legislators had two options, accepting this reality by voting yes, or exposing their own impotence with a symbolic no vote, which would almost surely see them circumvented and kicked out of office. Most chose to go along. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. With the passage of the motion to institute a hereditary government through the Senate, the empire became a legal reality. Once again, Napoleon employed his favorite political strategy of holding a national vote to confirm what his government had already done. A little under half the electorate actually turned out for this referendum. Over 3.5 million voted yes, and about 2,500 voted no. 99.93% for the Empire, 0.07% against. As you can probably guess, there was a lot of manipulation. For one thing, these were not secret ballots, so any no-voter would have to go on record opposing Napoleon. Most understood that this was a bad idea. It was now official. Long before the coronation, Napoleon was legally a hereditary emperor. This was a regime of professionals, lawyers and bureaucrats and accountants. They didn't need to see Napoleon anointed with holy oils or invested with ancient regalia to accept him as emperor. Revolutionary France was now a monarchy, but it was still a country of laws, not traditions. France was technically leaving republicanism behind forever but there was still a great deal of continuity with the revolutionary regimes of the preceding decade. This was not a return to the old regime, but the birth of something new. Something contradictory that defies easy explanation, not unlike Napoleon himself. Bonaparte chose his title quite deliberately. He was Emperor of the French, not Emperor of France. In his self-conception, and in the official ideology of the regime, he would be the representative of the people, of a nation, not an absolute monarch ruling over a slice of territory like the old regimes. This would be reflected in the coronation ceremony as well. There were two obvious models to draw on. The first was the royal coronations of the old regime. These ceremonies were governed by an ancient set of traditions, stretching back into the mists of the Dark Ages, to the very origins of France itself. The kings of the old regime were not crowned in Paris, but in Reims, 
a small provincial city about halfway between Paris and the modern Franco-Belgian border. There were all kinds of strange rituals. Most notably, the kings were anointed with a special holy oil, which supposedly had been found in the grave of a saint, after being delivered to earth from heaven by the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. This oil was so sacred, the new king's clothes had to be burned after the ceremony, simply because they might have come into contact with it. There were all kinds of ancient regalia and rituals. In the Middle Ages, these had been important symbolic representations of the rights and duties of the king, but by Napoleon's day, they were so outdated that they mostly just seemed eccentric. When the last king of France, Charles X, revived these traditions for his coronation in 1825, the ceremony was widely mocked by both the press and the public. As you can probably guess, Napoleon had little interest in mimicking the old regime. The other option was a more Republican-style ceremony, taking an oath of office on some outdoor public stage, surrounded by the people in whose name he would rule kind of like an American presidential inauguration. The Council of State favored this idea, and there was some precedent for it. King Louis XVI had taken a public oath to uphold the Constitution at the famous Feast of the Federation on Bastille Day 1790, launching France's brief experiment with constitutional monarchy. This idea did not really appeal to Napoleon either and not only because he had no desire to follow in King Louis's footsteps. He told the Council of State, quote, The people were sovereign then. Everything had to be done in their presence. We should be careful not to let them think it is still so. Today, the people are represented by legal institutions. End quote. So Bonaparte's coronation would not be a humble appeal to the public. He wanted a display of power and splendor that would instill the regime with the gravitas and prestige that all past revolutionary governments had lacked. He wanted to dazzle the world and overpower the people with spectacle, not implore them to support the regime. So Napoleon went with neither option. This new type of regime would be launched with an entirely new type of ceremony. It would take place at the Cathedral of Notre Dame, away from the eyes of the public, but right in the heart of Paris. The people of the capital would be able to see the dignitaries coming and going, and feel like they were a part of the celebrations in some small way. But the ceremony itself would be an exclusive affair. There would be some evocations of the past, not of the old regime, but of historical figures Napoleon actually admired. The connections to ancient Rome and to Charlemagne would be emphasized, and the links to the kings of France would be de-emphasized. In fact, in the lead-up to the ceremony, Napoleon took a well-publicized vacation to Charlemagne's capital and resting place, Aachen in the German Rhineland to show the public that he was grappling with the responsibilities of this new office. In founding his new empire, Charlemagne had brought a modicum of order to the chaos of the Dark Ages, 
and built a new status quo that had lasted for centuries. Napoleon was signaling that he hoped to do much the same thing, bring Europe out of this period of constant great power competition, and found a new order built on French power. But the allusions to Charlemagne and ancient Rome were mostly superficial. Almost everything would be new. Notre Dame is obviously very old, but it had never been used for a coronation in its long history, and its interior would be transformed for the event, almost unrecognizable. The coronation clothes and imperial regalia would be new as well, at the cost of millions of francs. People look at the opulence of Napoleon's coronation, and they often see self-aggrandizement. Napoleon was certainly prone to self-aggrandizement, but I don't think that's the whole story. This was an upstart regime. Looking back at Napoleon and his government with modern eyes, they seem like exactly the type of people you would expect to be running a government. Prominent lawyers, career civil servants, former executives from the private sector, and of course, one former senior military leader. But in 1804, this was something that set France apart from all her neighbors. Europe was basically still governed by men and a few women who had been born to rule. France's new ruling class of upper-middle-class professionals, who had risen on luck, connections, and merit, was widely perceived as an uncultured rabble, barely better than the common Parisian mob. Napoleon and his government had chips on their shoulders. And this wasn't just a question of pride, it was important for French foreign policy that France be treated like any other country, rather than as some radical outlaw state. With the opulence of this coronation, Napoleon was trying to show the world that he could surpass even the grandest old regime monarch, that he was no country bumpkin or trumped-up Corsican pirate, but a man the whole continent would have to take seriously. And not only for the present moment. Revolutionary governments came and went with the tides of political fortune, but empires are forever, at least they're supposed to be, and that's what the ceremony was meant to convey. Napoleon was here to stay, and so was his vision of a powerful, post-revolutionary, enlightened France, sitting at the center of European affairs, and there was nothing any of the crowned heads of Europe could do about it. At least, not for the moment. One of the few old traditions Napoleon did hope to revive was the presence of the Pope. Contrary to popular belief, there was never any discussion of the Pope himself placing the crown on Bonaparte's head. From the very beginning, Napoleon had always planned to crown himself, to emphasize the fact that he had become emperor through his own efforts not because he'd been selected by some outside body. Furthermore, if he had asked the Pope to conduct the coronation, I'm not sure Pius VII would have agreed. Despite the Concordat, the Vatican and the French government had some serious disagreements. As we've discussed at length in past episodes, the Concordat was a remarkable achievement but in many ways, it was more of a ceasefire than a true settlement between the two parties. There was still a lot of mutual mistrust, and on the Vatican side, 
there were still some hurt feelings and bruised egos over Napoleon's aggressive negotiation tactics, especially over the fact that he'd revised the Concordat after it was signed to make it even more favorable to France. Still, Napoleon wanted a Catholic element to the ceremony, and at least the appearance of the Pope's official blessing. However, Pius was not inclined to attend. To get his agreement, Foreign Minister Talleyrand had to strongly imply that, in exchange for the Pope's blessing, France would restore some of the papacy's territory which had been taken by the Italian sister republics, an implication that Talleyrand would carefully walk back after the ceremony. But the Pope was relatively easy to convince compared to Letizia Bonaparte, Napoleon's mother. Napoleon and his younger brother Lucien had recently fallen out. This is a complicated story, both personal and political, and we'll get into it in detail in a future episode. For our purposes, all you need to know right now is that the two brothers were not speaking, and by late 1804, Lucien had actually left France altogether. As he planned the coronation, Napoleon was still seething, he gave each of his siblings a role in the ceremony, except Lucien, who was not even invited. Letizia begged Napoleon to make some gesture of reconciliation. This was a great turning point in history and in the lives of the entire family. She believed this occasion should be above any petty squabble between brothers. But Napoleon refused, and so... His mother also left France to be with Lucien. Her absence pained Napoleon. In fact, when it came time for Jacques-Louis David to prepare the official depiction of the ceremony, the emperor ordered him to paint her into the gallery, as if she'd actually been there. There was yet another stumbling block. This would be a double coronation, Napoleon as emperor of the French, and Josephine as Empress of the French. The trouble was, in the eyes of the Catholic Church, Napoleon and Josephine were not married. If you think way back to our early episodes, you'll remember that Napoleon and Josephine had been married in a civil ceremony. It was 1796, and they were good Republicans. A church wedding had been totally out of the question. But, in the eyes of the Vatican, they were both Catholics, and if their union was not blessed by a priest, they were technically living in sin. Pope Pius did not raise this objection until the very eve of the coronation, perhaps getting a little payback for the way he'd been treated. Talleyrand rushed to the nearest church and brought its priest back to the palace. Napoleon and Josephine went through a quickie Catholic marriage and were finally husband and wife in the eyes of the church, after eight years of marriage. December 2nd, 1804, the day of the coronation, was bitterly cold by Parisian standards. It had snowed all night, and the government had to hire day laborers to shovel the roads between the Tuileries Palace and Notre Dame. The day started early. The newly renamed Imperial Guard was assembled around the cathedral at 5 a.m., nearly three hours before dawn. Lord Abrantes, the wife of one of Napoleon's closest friends, General Jean-Andeau Chouneau, would later recall, quote, 
All Paris was alive and in motion. Indeed, hundreds of persons had remained up all night. Many ladies had the courage to get their hair dressed at two o'clock in the morning, and then sat quietly in their chairs until the time came for arranging the other parts of their toilette. We were all very much hurried, for it was necessary to be at our posts before the procession moved from the Tuileries, for which nine o'clock was the appointed hour. End quote. The doors of the old cathedral opened at six, and the dignitaries began to filter in. The Senate arrived as a group shortly after 7 a.m. About an hour later, the Council of State, the tribunes, and the judges of the Supreme Courts arrived. Foreign guests were all seated together around nine. Russia, Austria, and Britain had all refused to send their ambassadors. Not a good sign for the future of peace in Europe. Next came the Catholic clergy, led of course by the Pope. The last group was the generals, led by Joachim Murat, Napoleon's longtime friend and commander of cavalry. By about ten in the morning, everyone had arrived. Even packed with people, on this December morning, the old stone cathedral was drafty and cold. Now that the scene was set, it was finally time for Napoleon and Josephine to leave the Tuileries. They boarded a carriage covered in gold leaf, special built for the occasion, and the palace guards fired off an artillery salute as the entourage pulled onto the Rue Saint-Honoré. On the way to the coronation, Napoleon rode past the Church of Saint-Roch, where he had given the notorious whiff of grapeshot against the royalist insurrection on 13 Vendémiaire, thus launching his political rise, which would culminate in a few hours. The Tuileries and Notre Dame were not far apart. Following the same route today would take less than 10 minutes to drive, or less than 30 to walk. But on this day, even in their gilded carriage, it took Napoleon and Josephine roughly an hour because the streets were so packed with people eager to catch a glimpse of the imperial couple on this historic day. Around 80,000 troops had been stationed inside the city for security and crowd control. There was a line of soldiers three ranks deep lining the road to the cathedral, but it seems they may have actually made the route more crowded and difficult to navigate. According to observers, the crowd was more curious than celebratory. Despite Napoleon's propaganda, the people of Paris had mixed feelings about this event. Bonaparte himself remained personally very popular, but the idea of a monarchy was quite controversial. From all over the political spectrum, everyone had their reasons for skepticism. The very idea of a monarchy made Republicans queasy. True, this monarchy would contain many Republican elements, and the monarch himself would be an ex-revolutionary. But all these decadent trappings of empire, and a blessing from the Pope in an ancient church, the ceremony was bound to rub Republicans the wrong way. Conservatives were not pleased either. They were quite comfortable with the idea of a monarchy but they didn't want some Corsican nobody on the throne. They wanted to see the ancient and legitimate House of Bourbon restored to their rightful place. 
To many conservatives, this very modern ceremony for a trumped-up ex-Jacobin made a mockery of a very sacred idea. So as Napoleon's gilded carriage made its slow progress to the cathedral, the crowd was mostly silent. When they arrived at Notre Dame, the carriage pulled into a pavilion that had been erected outside the bishop's residence. The next time the general public saw Napoleon, the coronation would be complete. The rest of the ceremony was an elite affair. The imperial couple entered the bishop's residence and changed into their coronation clothes, a very old-fashioned set of matching robes, in red and white, decorated with gold, and trimmed in ermine fur, long associated with royalty. Napoleon wore a golden laurel wreath, hearkening back to the crowns worn by victorious Roman generals. Josephine wore a jewel-encrusted tiara. By the time they were finally ready to enter Notre Dame, it was almost noon. The dignitaries inside had been ready and waiting in the crowded, cold cathedral for hours. Many of them didn't have seats. Apparently, Pope Pius believed this delay was deliberate, directed at him, and he was quietly seething throughout the whole ceremony. Napoleon and Josephine entered the church to the strains of music composed for the occasion by Giovanni Paisello, Napoleon's favorite composer. According to one source, as he entered the church, Napoleon embraced his brother Joseph and whispered to him in Corsican, quote, Imagine if father could see us now. End quote. A good story, but probably not true. Still, you have to wonder if maybe he didn't spare a thought for all of his father's ambitions, which had been realized beyond anything he could have dreamed of. The long train of Josephine's robe was carried by Napoleon's sisters. The whole Bonaparte family hated Josephine, and this was something of a sore spot for Napoleon. He may have designed this particular element of the ceremony as a reminder to his family to respect his wife. Both Napoleon and Josephine struggled to climb the stairs to the altar in their heavy, cumbersome robes. There is a persistent rumor that the Bonaparte sisters actually pulled on the train of Josephine's robe to try to make her trip, but given that Napoleon stumbled too, it was probably just this bulky clothing. Pope Pius was seated next to the altar, and on top of it were the imperial crowns. This was the pinnacle of Napoleon's political career. He was only 35 years old, but this was the top rung of the ladder. Once that crown touched his head, he could climb no further. And yet, despite this moment of triumph, according to observers, Bonaparte looked pale and sullen. He gave no outward sign of exultation or satisfaction. All this pomp and circumstance was not really his style. It's ironic given how much his propaganda made use of all the splendor and symbolism, but Napoleon was a cynical person with simple tastes. He understood the importance and power of spectacle, but I don't think it did very much for him on a personal level. And besides, he was probably uncomfortable in those ungainly robes. Once Napoleon and Josephine made their entrance and ascended to the altar, Pope Pius delivered a full Catholic Mass. Those of you who have attended Catholic services are probably thinking, my God, how long did this thing last? 
But bear in mind, mass was much shorter in 1804 than it is today. As agreed in advance, Napoleon and Josephine did not seek and did not receive Holy Communion, but instead got a blessing from the Pope. During this part of the ceremony, Napoleon and Josephine were anointed with oil, but, per Napoleon's instructions, this was just regular Catholic holy oil, not the famous oil of Clovis which had been used to anoint the kings of the old regime. It's worth mentioning at this point that hardly any of the audience could actually see the ceremony. Notre Dame does not have stadium seating, only those who were positioned close to the altar or in the upper gallery with a clear line of sight could actually view the proceedings. Only those who were very close could hear anything being said. For most of the attendees, this was a very boring and uncomfortable affair, only made tolerable by their desire to be present at this historic moment. Although, according to one source, a few food vendors were able to sneak in, so at least people weren't hungry. Once the Mass was over, Napoleon stood up, took the crown from the altar, turned to the audience, and raised it high, almost a full arm's length, then placed it on his own head. Again, this was highly rehearsed. There had never been any plans for the Pope to carry out the coronation himself. Next, Josephine knelt, and her husband crowned her. This was the first time in French history in which the monarch's consort had been fully included in the ceremony. The queens of France had always been treated as an afterthought. One by one, high-ranking government officials and military leaders presented Napoleon with his imperial regalia, a scepter, a sword, and the so-called Rod of Justice. These were opulent, jewel-encrusted symbols of the emperor's duties. They were made to look old, and the scepter was even referred to as the scepter of Charlemagne, and the crown as the crown of Charlemagne, but they were all brand new, created for this occasion. The Pope then embraced Napoleon, kissed him on the cheek, and led the audience in the traditional Latin acclamation for a new emperor, Vivat Imperator Eneturnum, meaning, May the Emperor Live Forever. The Pope's role in the ceremony was now concluded and he had no desire to be any part of what would come next, and so he left. It probably seemed a bit abrupt to many observers, but this too had been planned in advance. Napoleon was about to take the oath of office, and that oath included a lot of things the Pope did not approve of, and, politically speaking, could not afford to be publicly associated with. Next, Napoleon walked to the other side of the cathedral, where a huge, Roman-style triumphal arch had been erected. The top of the arch read, Napoleon, Emperor of the French, and the two feet were inscribed with the words, Honor and Fatherland. Beneath the arch was a raised platform, with two thrones. The Emperor and Empress ascended the platform and sat in their thrones. Napoleon placed his left hand on a Bible, raised his right hand, and took the oath, quote, I swear to maintain the territorial integrity of the Republic, to respect and to make respected the laws of the Concordat and of freedom of religion, to respect and to make respected the equality of rights, political and civil liberty, 
the irrevocability of the sales of biens nationaux, neither to levy nor to impose any tax, save in virtue of the law, to maintain the institution of the Legion of Honor, to govern only in the interests of the happiness and glory of the French people. End quote. Once the oath was completed, the audience began to shout, Long live the emperor! This was prearranged, but perhaps some of them really were moved by the solemnity of the occasion. Then there was a procession out of the church, and the ceremony was over. It was the early afternoon. Remember, the doors of Notre Dame had opened at six in the morning, so this was almost a full day affair for many of the attendees. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In a certain sense, the ceremony was an anticlimax. For starters, Napoleon was already emperor. The regime operated in a much more modern, legalistic framework than the old regime monarchies. The old rulers of France did not legally become king until all those arcane medieval rituals were completed. Napoleon had already ascended to the throne by an act of the legislature. So, when you really get down to it, this ceremony at Notre Dame was really nothing more than a pantomime, putting a dramatic flourish on a months-old piece of legislation. I could wax poetic about how Napoleon had finally reached the apex of his political career. All his childhood fantasies of following in the footsteps of his historical heroes and becoming a great warlord and statesman had been fully realized. Thinking about the coronation in the abstract, it seems like Napoleon's entire life was leading up to this moment. But the closer you look at it, the less impressive it seems. It's like that triumphal arch under which Napoleon took his oath of office, very imposing at a glance, and certainly well-made enough to dazzle the audience. But there was really nothing to it. It was wood and plaster with a good paint job draped in silk, a temporary structure with little substance. Let's look at the stated rationales behind the coronation. It was supposed to imbue Napoleon's regime with the same type of legitimacy enjoyed by the other monarchies of Europe. I don't think that was achieved. For one thing, this was a totally modern ceremony, a hodgepodge of reimagined old traditions mixed with the Enlightenment liberalism of the Revolution. Napoleon's oath of office even referred to France as a republic. This was a very accurate representation of Napoleon's own views 
which were an idiosyncratic mix of right, left, and center, secular and religious, republican and monarchist. And it was certainly dazzling. But if anything, the ceremony had only highlighted the differences between Napoleon's revolutionary empire and a traditional European monarchy. Then there was the Pope's involvement. This was supposed to be a symbol of the reconciliation between the Vatican and the French government, brought on by the Concordat. A reminder that the days of civil conflict were over. France had returned to normal, and the Catholic Church and the government were now working together again. But, as we saw, the Pope was barely willing to participate, and only in a limited role. Napoleon and Josephine had not received Holy Communion. For a Catholic to not take communion implies that they are still living in sins that have not been reconciled with God. And Pius had left the ceremony before the oath of office. These things had been noticed. If anything, the Pope's involvement in the coronation had drawn attention to the continuing disharmony between Rome and Paris. Bonaparte's supporters also claimed the imperial crown would bring the regime a degree of international prestige and respectability. France was still widely perceived as a rogue state, the capital of a violent, aggressive, worldwide revolutionary movement. It was claimed that making Napoleon into a monarch would help change this perception. But the European ruling class did not seem interested. Only a tiny handful of foreign heads of state had actually answered the invitations, and they mostly came from small German states along France's eastern border, who were afraid of the potential consequences of snubbing Napoleon. As I've already mentioned, several of the great powers declined to even send their ambassadors. Napoleon would never be fully accepted as a member in good standing of the European nobility, although this would not be his last attempt to join. To his enemies, he would always be seen as an upstart, a brash country bandit from rustic Corsica. If anything, the opulence of the coronation just made the contrast between his lofty position and humble origins even more stark. The British tabloid press had a field day depicting the coronation as a tacky, tasteless mess the crude boorish revolutionaries pathetically trying to ape the ineffable grace of high royalty. You often see the famous saying, from the sublime to the ridiculous is but a single step, attributed to Napoleon. In fact, this was already a stock phrase before he was even born. But, looking at the coronation, you can see why it is so often associated with Bonaparte. Lastly, most supporters of the coronation claimed the empire was necessary for stability, that the people had to be assured that there would be continuity of government in the event of Napoleon's death, and the only way to do that was through hereditary rule. But this argument doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. When Napoleon was given the title of First Consul for Life in 1802, he was also given the right to name his own successor. So the issue of continuity of government in the event of his death had already been solved. Furthermore, Napoleon and Josephine did not have any children, and the Empress was 41 years old. In 1804, that meant they probably never would. 
So, what are we to conclude from all this? Was the coronation simply a failure? A mistake? Well, it certainly fell short of some of Napoleon's hopes, but I don't think we can call it a failure, because the true significance of the coronation was mostly unspoken. This was a statement of ambition. Napoleon was announcing to the world that he intended to be a Charlemagne of the post-revolutionary age, that he aimed to extend his reach as far as fate would allow, to remake the geopolitical map of the world with his dynamic, enlightened France at its center. It showed that he would undertake this task in his own way, borrowing traditions where he saw fit and incorporating new ideas brought forward by the revolution. Napoleon was trying to reinvent monarchy, to make it fit with his own political and historical ideas. And, as with any reinvention, there were some miscues, and a vague hint of farce. When the rituals of European kingship were first established, all the way back in the Dark Ages, they had probably seemed ridiculous to some observers. But that's the advantage of power. People could laugh and poke holes in Napoleon's coronation all they wanted. But, unless some force was able to knock Bonaparte off his throne, this new type of coronation and new type of monarchy would, with time, form a new precedent. That process was already well underway within the first few years of the empire. The problems with the ceremony itself and the half-baked political arguments made in favor of the empire were largely forgotten. The mere fact of Napoleon's staying power on the throne was a more powerful argument for his legitimacy than any ceremony. People remembered the dazzling spectacle of the event, and how bold and brazen Napoleon had been in planning this entirely new type of ceremony, and they certainly remembered that iconic moment when this self-made man of destiny placed the crown on his own head. Many of the European ruling elite laughed at the combination of old-fashioned opulence and revolutionary civic virtue, but as prints and pamphlets depicting the ceremony began to circulate, many of the public really were dazzled. The official painting of the coronation by Jacques-Louis David was regarded as an instant classic. Even today, it remains one of the most iconic works of the age. People lined up around the block to view the painting. Probably tens of thousands of average French men and women saw it in the months after it was unveiled. In fact, there was so much buzz around this painting that the artist Louis-Léopold Boilly painted his own work depicting the crowds at the Louvre viewing David's coronation, and Boilly's painting of another painting wound up being a big hit as well. As far as I know, there are no paintings of the crowds viewing Boilly's painting of the crowds viewing David's painting. Journalists, liberal intellectuals, and European aristocrats were not very impressed by the coronation. Politically active people inside France had their reservations about it as well. But the people who Napoleon's regime really depended on generally were impressed. The small-town bourgeoisie, minor landowners, prosperous small-time merchants, and the wealthier strata of the peasantry. Today, we might call them his base, 
Napoleon referred to them as the masses of granite. Of course, it took time for Napoleon's public relations machine to reach out into the provinces. On the day of the coronation itself, celebrations were muted. The government paid for fireworks and hot air balloons. The lower classes drank and danced in the streets, and the upper classes held balls and parties in the emperor's honor. But not everyone was happy. Looking back on the day of the coronation, one young Parisian remembered returning to his apartment in a rage, closing all the windows and doors, and shutting his curtains. He had once been a great admirer of Napoleon, but this spectacle sickened him to the point that he didn't even want to hear the sounds of celebration coming from the street. His name was Simon Bolivar. The future liberator of Spanish America would carry this memory with him all his life. Years later, he would find himself in a very similar political situation to Napoleon's, and he refused a crown of his own. In Vienna, the composer Ludwig von Beethoven heard the news of the coronation from a friend and exclaimed, quote, So, he is no more than a common mortal. Now, he too will tread all the rights of man underfoot and indulge only his ambition. Now, he will think of himself superior to all men and become a tyrant. End quote. Then, Beethoven went to his table and looked down at his recently completed Third Symphony which was dedicated to Napoleon. The young composer pulled out a knife and began violently cutting into the symphony, carving out the dedication with such force that the whole first page had to be rewritten. This sense of betrayal seems to have been more common outside France. By 1804, French men and women were well aware that Napoleon was a dictator, and they had either made their peace with it or stopped supporting him long ago. However, for Napoleon's foreign admirers like Beethoven and Bolivar, who were insulated from the everyday realities of his regime, this was a genuine shock. We shouldn't exaggerate the negative fallout of the coronation. The so-called masses of granite who made up the popular base of Bonapartism generally approved of the empire, or at least weren't bothered by it. But it seems the imperial crown really did damage Napoleon's standing among enlightened world opinion. Intellectuals like Beethoven and educated men of the world like Bolivar had seen Napoleon as one of their own. This unapologetic turn towards monarchism shattered many illusions. But those perceptions really had been illusions. Anyone who had paid close attention to French politics over the last decade could have seen that all the idealism and democratic possibilities had drained out of revolutionary politics long ago. I'm not sure if you could pick a precise date as the moment France became a dictatorship, but it certainly happened long before Napoleon's coronation. I think it probably happened long before Napoleon even took power. These liberal admirers of Napoleonic France had been ignoring this slide towards authoritarianism for years, but the spectacle of the coronation made it impossible to ignore any longer. No wonder Bolivar angrily shut his windows and closed the curtains. He was desperately trying to continue shutting out the reality of his hero's regime. But, as I said, 
this type of thinking was mostly confined to a handful of young intellectuals. By now, most of France knew who Napoleon was and what his regime represented. And most of them were ready to follow him wherever he led, even as his new imperial regime continued to straddle the line between sublime and ridiculous. The new year, 1805, would prove to be one of the most pivotal in European history. France would soon be at war on the continent again, and the emperor would make everyone who had mocked his coronation eat their words. Next time, we'll begin the story of the remarkable campaigns of the War of the Third Coalition. Until then, thanks for listening. 